0: I ain't no bug. I ain't no bug. I ain't no, I ain't no, I ain't no, I ain't no Welcome to Totally Sort of the Podcast. It's sort of like a review show and totally like catching up with your best friend. I'm Chris.
1: And I'm Darren. We're going to let you know what kind of geeky goodness we've been up to this week, what we've been watching, reading, playing, and listening to. We'll tell you what you totally need to check out and what is sort of worth skipping.
0: Sounds good. So before we get into uh, the weekly roundup, have you got anything uh, sort of totally random you want to talk about?
1: I do. I went to see a play this week called King Charles III.
0: A play,
1: like in a theater? It was. This one is King Charles III. It's a play by Mark Bartlett. It yeah. comes from London's West End uh, via Broadway and then into Toronto for this iteration.
0: So is this a comedy or a serious thing? Or
1: They describe it as a future history. It's sort of a hmm. modern-based play modeled after a Shakespearean history. Okay. So the idea is that the queen has died, and Charles has become king. And that's where you get into it. And then what follows is a political struggle, a inter-palace struggle, and a familial struggle between the royal family as we know it. Mm. So what would you think? I quite liked it. Yeah. It, uh, the story is really well written. It uh, was well acted. I uh, had some issues with some production choices.
0: Now, um, when you said it was sort of based off uh, on the Shakespearean template, um, was the dialogue sort of that structured, or was it a little more natural?
1: You have hit upon what one of my problems okay. with it was, in that because I think they wanted it to have the feel of Shakespearean history, yeah, they used a light version of the Shakespearean dialect. Okay. So it wasn't full on so it was
0: sort of like Star Trek Shakespeare.
1: Yeah, so they didn't go full on old English, but they threw a lot of thou and dusts into mm. it. And it also seemed to be relatively inconsistent. Yeah. So where there were sort of long monologues, it would really sort of dive into the Shakespearean dialect, but on the sort of back and forth conversationalism, it just sort of seemed to fade away and then come back. It wasn't distracting, but, and I understand that they wanted it to feel like a Shakespearean history, but kind of thought if you, you you either go full on or not at all. And given that they were telling a story that was contemporary, I think it could have done without it. Hmm. Cool overall you had a good time with it? Yeah, overall it was quite good. The palace intrigue aspect of it had a, a lot of parallels with things that are popular like Game of Thrones and The Crown and that sort of thing, mm-hmm. but it was a well-written intrigue story that involved both aspects of uh, interfamilial familial conflict, uh, sort of general conflict between the royal family as a whole, but then also involved political conflict between the royal family and the british parliament hmm. cool good story cool
0: that's kind of neat
1: how about you any random thoughts you want to throw out there
0: i uh actually went to a gaming event on saturday uh here in london it was a uh, family game day basically just a very very casual board gaming convention So this is something that I actually had helped organize for a couple of years, but this year I was able to just go as a participant and hang out. And how was it? It was good. I uh, got to catch up with some people I haven't seen or played games with for a while and got to try uh, a number of board games that I'd kind of heard about or seen and and not had a chance to play. So, uh,
1: yeah, it was pretty good. And have they kept up the the event to the quality that you've become accustomed to, having been an uh, organizer?
0: Well, it's funny because it's, it's always kind of neat to go to an event that you have been part of organizing because you appreciate everything that's gone into it and you appreciate that you don't have to do it yourself. So, uh, yeah, they did a pretty good job. It was uh, it was a little bit distracting because I kept seeing things that's like, oh, somebody needs to be doing that, but kept my nose out and just did my own thing.
1: So it was a good time. Somebody needs to do it, but not me. Exactly. Exactly. How was your week in Geek?
0: It was a little light. I wasn't uh, absorbing a whole lot or consuming a whole lot. A few neat things to catch up on. How about you?
1: Mine was good. I found lots of things to do this week that I liked, and work was a little sane. Uh, after getting back from my vacation last week, it uh, was quite easy to get back in, and I found some time to look at some other stuff. Very cool. And I understand you were doing some deep Netflix combing
0: started on a couple of series that uh, I'm not going to do a deep dive on, but uh, I'll let you know what I've been watching. One is uh, a German show called Dark. And, All right. Uh, had you heard
1: of this one? Only because on my recommended by Netflix, it's one of the shows that keeps popping up as uh, something that I should be watching according to Netflix. So
0: I'm only three or four episodes in. Uh, I think it's maybe sort of in that 8 to 12 episode season range but it's looking really really cool it's set in a small town in germany and um it's mysterious with probably supernatural elements going on i don't know had you seen that uh french show called the returned
1: i watched some of it but they didn't get that deep into it okay
0: so it's kind of got that vibe it's it's very realistic it's very kind of gritty small town. The people look like real people. Um, I think one of the really cool things about it is that people don't look like Hollywood people. There are a lot of ugly people and <laughs> just normal looking people, which just gives these things a, a real kind of layer of reality that or realism that you don't get with uh, American productions. But there's, I'm not sure how supernatural this is going to be, but it's feeling like a little maybe grimmer, darker version of Stranger Things, something like that. Right. Definitely enjoying it so far, and I will check in and report back when I've seen more of it.
1: I think the other show that you were going to talk about is uh, Altered Carbon. Yeah, and this one I
0: think is probably on a lot more people's radar. Had you heard of this one?
1: Again, Netflix keeps telling me that it's something I should be watching. Yeah, so
0: I, I again, it, it kind of came up as promoted on Netflix for me. I realized that this was a book that a friend of mine had given me uh, recently. Um, So the series is based on a sci-fi series called Altered Carbon. And it's kind of, it's getting compared to Blade Runner a lot. And it's, uh, again, I'm only a few episodes in. It's visually pretty cool. Um, There's a lot going on. I'm not sure if it's that great of a show, but it's got great production values. And you cast lots of nudity. It feels kind of HBO-y.
1: Yeah, Netflix seems to be upping the production value consistently on all of their things. Yeah, it's
0: it's it's cool. Like it's uh, it's really interesting to see how much they seem to be throwing at this. And it's I don't know whether it's big budget or whether maybe it's getting just more affordable and easier to do sci-fi and fantasy that look expensive. I don't know if if that's a, a CGI uh, side effect, but it looks pretty spectacular.
1: Yeah, we've gone beyond the fact that technology has developed to the point where these things can be made to possibly easing into the point where they can be made without needing a giant studio and a multi-million dollar budget.
0: Yeah, and I I think it's cool that it's not even so much about is it possible and is it possible to make it realistic, but... We can kind of assume that it's possible. We can assume you can make it look believable and actually start thinking about, can you make it look cool? Can you make it look stylish and good?
1: If that's the case, I think it will be nice because it will open up uh, a lot of possible content to be made by a lot of people. Because over the last few years, the movies have sort of been buffercated into these really small, almost indie films, Mm -hmm. and the giant blockbuster. And there haven't been that many films in the middle point because you can't make it look well enough to earn the money that the studios expect on a return in that middle of the road range. Yeah, I, I I heard somebody
0: talking about this recently about the fact that there seems to be very few sort of middle budget films being made anymore. Like, as you said, they're super cheap indies or big blockbusters and nothing in between. And one of the points that I was reading about was about the guy who is, or some of the directors being chosen for Star Wars movies. The fact that they haven't sort of been able to grow into these big blockbusters and they, actually, it was the duo that was assigned to direct the Han Solo movie.
1: Guys who got canned? Yeah.
0: And apparently, um, you know, some of the speculation is that they just, they weren't ready to handle that kind of production and that they might've been doing some cool things, but there's so much structure and logistics around a production like that, that if you've only been doing little indie films, you don't have that background.
1: Yeah. I heard as well that, I mean, these are the guys who did the Lego movie. And although star wars is hiring or disney as owners of star wars have been hiring these directors they're not really being hired to execute their own vision of a star wars film and some of the speculation as well was that the lego guys were trying to put a little too much of their own vision into it and not follow the formula that the star wars disney universe expects
0: i can totally believe that would be the case are you are you excited about the uh, han solo thing at all
1: i am a bit i've Kind of seen that we're gonna get everything that we want to see in the movie, which has made me kind of excited. Yeah. Like we're gonna to get to see Lando Calrissian, we're gonna to get to see Chewbacca, we're gonna to get to see the castle run.
0: Yeah, i it's. I don't know. I I've kind of, I'm kind of torn on this one. This is the first Star Wars movie to come out that I'm have reservations about. I think every other one I've just been. Yep, bring it on! I'm excited. This one, it's like I'll probably be very excited to see it once it finally gets here. But I, I don't know if it's just because of combination of the fact that there was some behind the scenes turmoil and the fact that it's kind of doing a backstory on a character that I was kind of happy to not know all those details. I'm a little nervous about them kind of tromping on tromping on a backstory that I don't need in the first place.
1: Yeah, I was. I have to admit that. I was actually more excited about seeing it when I saw the teaser versus when I saw the longer length trailer that uh, is most recently out. We'll see. Anyways,
0: enough about television. I understand you went to see Black Panther tonight.
1: I did. It is Sunday, so I am seeing it at least in the weekend of release.
0: Sure, lord that over me. (laughs)
1: so i went to see black panther Uh, i saw it in the toronto 4dx theater so i got the moving seats and the air puffing in my face and uh water being sprayed at me had had
0: you done the 4dx thing before
1: i did i saw valerian in the 4dx theater okay
0: and and would you recommend it do you like that
1: it is a lot of fun actually Uh, more so than i don't really enjoy 3d movies all Mm -hmm. that much but i think when you throw in the extra stuff it's entertaining the one thing that bothers me is that all of the other stuff gets you and i don't find it necessarily distracting from the film but the air puffs that they use it's not the air hitting my face it's the sound so each time one of those air puffs goes off it makes a little (laughs) sound and i find that really annoying that they're adding sound I want to hear the gunshot I don't want to hear a sound as air is puffed in my face so if they could get a silencer for the air puffs I would be much happier with it
0: all right so uh how's the movie
1: Black Panther was great cool I was uh, really happy with it I have almost no complaints at all about it I thought it was a really well-written story I saw no major glaring plot holes I had no complaints about story or development or any of the characters i thought the cast was fantastic Uh, like winter soldier Mm -hmm. which is one of my favorite of the marvel movies i thought it worked both as a really good superhero movie but also worked really well just as a story Mm -hmm. i'm a big fan of ryan coogler who was the director and writer for this one okay and so since uh 2015 when he wrote and directed creed
0: yeah
1: i haven't seen creed It's a fantastic movie, and frankly, he was completely robbed that year in not being nominated for... Director may have been a bit of a stretch, given his greenness at the time, but as an original screenplay, I I thought he was robbed that year. But when Creed did so well and he got assigned to both write and direct this film, I was very excited by it, and I thought he really came through with a really well-rounded story. I have no issues with the story whatsoever. (laughs) I thought it was great. My nitpicky issue is that I don't really like the Black Panther costume.
0: Yeah, I hear you. I
1: like the, I like the classic blackness of the Black Panther's yep. costume in the comic books. And in combination with the costume and its visual visual look, I also had a bit of an issue that a lot of Black Panther's abilities and powers actually come from the costume. It's mm. basically like Tony Stark's armor, right. Iron Man armor.
0: So it's not just like he's powered up and wearing uh, tights. He's in more of like a suit that gives him abilities.
1: Yeah, I mean, he has the Black Panther abilities, but then he has a suit layered on top of that. And I'd understand it a bit in that they want him to be on par with the major players in the Marvel Universe. And a guy who's sort of enhanced by the... Black Panther abilities in a plain suit is really just going to be Hawkeye. Yeah. So they wanted, I think they wanted him to be a top tier hero in the Marvel Universe and you can't do that if, unless you can take a punch from the Hulk or Thor or Iron Man. Now,
0: how are the bad guys in this movie?
1: I really like them. Uh, Michael B. Jordan who plays Killmonger. Mm -hmm. He's linked to Ryan Coogler quite heavily. He's used him in all of his films and uh, I really liked him. Uh, before although not in the fantastic four movie but in all of ryan coogler's films i've really enjoyed michael b jordan and i thought he was great as killmonger uh you get claw back again ulysses claw and he actually
0: becomes claw in this he does i mean not as not as uh out there as the comic book version who is sort of uh, he's actually yep. like entirely made of sound waves isn't he in the uh in the comics? Yeah,
1: I think so. And they they are just focused through the claw, but yeah, he gets his claw or he has the claw in this one. He was fun. Cool. He's a good character. I uh, enjoyed him and uh, some of the sort of side characters that belong to the other uh, Wakandan tribes that are not really villains, but antagonists Mm -hmm. uh, also really help sort of round it out. Cool.
0: How um, And don't worry about spoiling things for me personally. I I don't know how our listeners feel, but um, how much tie-in to other elements of the Marvel Universe do we get in this? Is it fairly standalone?
1: When I watched it, that was the one sort of criticism about the story that I had that it seemed to be trying really hard to be its own standalone movie. And I wanted to see something that had some connection to the rest of the Marvel Universe. Mm -hmm. But when I thought about it afterwards, it's, uh, and this isn't really a spoiler, but it basically takes place immediately following the events in in, uh, Civil War. And so when I thought about it in that respect, I thought, you know, everything was kind of in chaos. It kind of makes sense that there wouldn't really be anybody around paying attention to what was going on uh, in this storyline, nor would there necessarily be a route of contact between T'Challa and any of the other elements of the Marvel Universe. So although during the movie, I kind of thought, There were instances where it seemed odd that there wasn't then some interaction with others in the Marvel Universe. When I thought about the timeline and when it was set afterwards, I was kind of satisfied that there wasn't.
0: So it gets your Continuity Geek uh, seal of approval?
1: It does. Uh, you'll get your tie-in uh, if you stick around for the closing, uh, for the post-credit sequences. So I won't kind of spoil how, how, them at all. But how many
0: do we have to sit through? Only two in this okay. one,
1: not like uh, Guardian 2's five sequences. <laughs> one mid-credit sequence, one end-credit sequence. All right.
0: Good to know. I appreciate hearing that without having to Google
1: it. Yeah, you will have to wait to go to the bathroom all the way till the end. Though. <laughs> I can deal with that. All right, let's move along to another topic. Let's uh, try board games, and I think you played a board game this week you wanted to speak about.
0: Yeah, so uh, as I mentioned, I went to this uh, gaming event, and one of the games that I got to play was called Role Player. Is this one that you've heard of? It is not. Okay, so think back to your earliest days of playing Dungeons & Dragons. Think of how many times... That's
1: so many years ago. Yeah,
0: think of how many times you created characters that never played them. Just creating characters is kind of fun in a role-playing game, is it not? It is.
1: I remember... You, did you ever play Champions, the superhero yes. role-playing game? I don't know how many of those character sheets I just drew used the little uh, form of a hero that they gave yep. you as an outline to just draw costumes onto heroes and maybe give them names.
0: Yep. So this this is a game that kind of takes the recognizes that making a character... Is fun in and of itself and it's a, a dice rolling strategy game that's entirely based around the premise of creating a character it's basically like a D&D clone so you think of all the different elements that a D&D character has so you've all right. so you've got uh, your abilities ability scores you know strength dexterity intelligence those things but now instead of just and you know when you're creating a character you want to roll high and get those ability scores high. In this game you've got your ability scores, you've got a race, a class, so I was a a dragonborn sorcerer. It has all of the... It's, it totally rips off D&D. It, they don't even pretend to, to um, change things up. You've got an alignment and all, the, all these things that you would have on your character sheet, but they're all ways of scoring points. So if you get your alignment in the best place for your character, you get points. If you get your ability scores high in the right ways, you get points. It was really very different. Not a lot of interaction, like you're kind of just everybody doing their own thing, but uh, it was really cool.
1: So whoever gets the best character scores the most points and wins? Well, there's,
0: um, so you get points for your ability scores, you get points for hitting your class bonuses, you have a backstory, and if you kind of achieve that you know make your backstory work there are points for that and yeah they all add up to points and whoever whoever gets the best character out of that wins
1: see if somebody could take the city of heroes character Mm -hmm. creator and then just make a points-based game out of that i could play that for hours that was
0: amazing it's funny you mentioned champions because uh making superhero characters i think we we both can agree on is something that it's a, a rabbit hole we can both get sucked down very easily All right, so I understand uh, you've got a new podcast you've been listening to.
1: I do. I've been completely sucked into this podcast called Song Exploder.
0: Song Exploder, okay.
1: It is uh, a podcast where they have musicians on who then break down songs. So it's uh, done by this guy named Harish Kashiraway. He's a musician. He's uh, in a band called uh, the 1AM Radio, who I had never heard of. He is basically the band. He plays all the instruments. And
0: Okay. So they, they just do a deep dive and deconstruct, like, a song in terms of yep. recording? Or it's what?
1: different focuses on different episodes. Uh, so generally they have one or maybe two is the most that I've heard people from the band okay. come in. And they take one song... They come to the podcast, obviously, with the multi-track recordings. Mm -hmm. So they will, some of them just break down, well, I sort of, I started with this song because I had an interesting drum beat that I wanted to build something along. And then they'll play you just the drum track, isolated. And and then, you know, but then it's generally, and then I had this guitar lick that I wanted to use. They'll play you just the guitar track. Mm -hmm. So it's really interesting to be able to hear each of the individual components of the song and then hear discussions about how they came up with that component or what it was that was interesting about it. And they're really tight. Uh, The the longest one I've seen is about 20 minutes. Most of them uh, are in the 15, 18 minute range. And that includes playing the whole song at the end. So it's not uh, a super deep dive, but there's uh, just a lot of interesting stuff from the artists in terms of how and where this came from why i did it and the the chance to hear sort of those isolated tracks really gives you uh there are things that sometimes you don't hear in the song the two that i listened to was one by rostam for bike dream and the other one by a band called slow dive for a song called sugar for the pill and Uh, So particularly on the Sugar for the Pill one from Slow Dive, there is a female backing vocal Mm -hmm. in in the song that I never, that I I always knew was there, but it never really struck me that much as being uh, essential to the song until listening to that isolated uh, and so when he came on the podcast you could he could just play you her backing mm. vocal track and then play you the track without it and then th- just snippets of it yeah. but then play you the track with it back in and you, you really see oh yeah it, it's totally essential to the song That's even cool. though it's not something that hits you in the face when you're listening to it
0: Do you know if, have they done uh, any kind of like classic, tracks or is it all contemporary? No
1: there's some old, uh, Iggy Pop has one, mm-hmm. uh, there's an old Killers song on it where they talk about some older cool. stuff. I haven't listened to all of them but it, it's mostly contemporary yeah. stuff.
0: That's really cool. It's uh, I love the idea of hearing people point out the different tracks and components that go into a song because, I don't know about you, but when uh, Rock Band and Guitar Hero came along that was a new way to appreciate a lot of music that I was already familiar with. But when you start really listening carefully to the bass line, for example, in a in a song that you've never really listened to because it just kind of faded into the mix, uh, you get a real appreciation for, for a song that you might already know. Yeah,
1: I, I think it's great to, to hear that kind of stuff, and I love the fact that they're short and uh tightly written and or at least tightly edited and then you get all this discussion and then you get the song at the end and
0: so has this been going on for a while are there a lot of episodes out there
1: yeah there's probably 30 or 40 episodes i'm gonna have to check that out and it's a pretty wide variety of uh, genres of music too it's pretty fun cool i've been digging through for uh my initial dive was just to find bands and songs that I know and sure. like, so I've been through a couple of those, but it's got me enough that I'm prepared to listen to stuff that isn't definitively in my wheelhouse of music for normal listening. Nice. Cool. I will check that out. Uh, any podcasts been on your radar this week? Um, I have started
0: dabbling in a couple more. Um, I tend to listen to a lot of uh, nonfiction, a lot of factual kind of stuff. The two that I've been checking out most recently, one is called uh, Endless Scroll, and it's actually another NPR radio co-production that's based on Reddit, so it's basically combing Reddit for juicy nuggets and putting them in a podcast form, which is kind of cool as somebody who doesn't spend a lot of time on Reddit. Uh, The other one I've just discovered actually yesterday or this morning uh, was called The Futility Closet, and... This one is basically just interesting historical stories, and it's not part of a network or anything like that. It's just a guy who, I guess he's a physics student, or physics prof, maybe. And uh, the, the story that I was listening to this morning was about bat bombs in World War II.
1: Bombs involving actual bats?
0: bombs delivered by actual bats
1: well, see i wanted a sharknado style bomb <laughs> that just dropped bats all over the place okay but, okay
0: so the idea here was a, a plane full of bats all of these bats with tiny incendiary devices attached to them mm-hmm. and uh, you would drop these over an urban area and the bats would fly into buildings and go and nest and then all their little incendiary bombs would go off and set the city on
1: fire. It's kind of a expansion on the bats in the belfry idea.
0: <laughs> it's it's such a crazy sounding idea but they, the US military uh, pursued this during World War II and some of the, the best nuggets of uh, fact out of this is one that um, the guy who came up with this idea um, sold it to the president uh, Roosevelt based on the fact that uh, this he, he believed that this was like why why God had created bats was to deliver bombs to their enemies that was a bit out there uh, but the even more amazing thing is that this concept seemed to actually work they got pretty far on in the testing and it really worked they were able to basically anesthetize bats put them in these huge canisters drop them out of planes, and uh, the bats would, sure enough, fly around the area that they were released and go into roost and set buildings on fire. (laughs) So, Futility Closet. Um, I've only listened to one, but it, it seems pretty promising. What do you know about all
1: the filth that's going on here, huh?
0: I understand you have a bit of a brain dump for me this week.
1: I do. I have learned way too much about something that will never assist me in any way in life, and that is the Overwatch League, which is Blizzard's esports league for the game Overwatch.
0: Okay, now, have you played Overwatch yourself? I have not. Neither have I. I I do know something about this league, though.
1: Yeah, and it wasn't uh, because I was interested in the game so much as the story of the league itself kind of made me do a double take in terms of really that this is actually getting this big. the The irony of this, uh, in terms of this story, is that I read the original article about it in Wired magazine. Okay. So the the ironic part is that although I consume almost all of my news online, I actually have a paper subscription to Wired magazine, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so I was intrigued enough to then go do additional research because it just seemed like uh, it was difficult for me to fathom that things have gotten this big in this realm uh, at this point in time so
0: did you uh hear about like the bidding on the franchises and all that stuff
1: yeah and so generally if you don't if people don't know what the overwatch league is this is a totally created from scratch esports league for blizzard's game overwatch and although i've never played overwatch apparently a lot of people are playing overwatch the research that i found they think uh that there are about 35 million active players worldwide yeah
0: and this is a pretty new game too in terms of you know in the grand scheme of
1: things it's only a little over a year old and from the financial stuff that I looked at, it pulled in over a billion dollars for Blizzard in its first year without having a, a, a league yeah. to continue to promote it.
0: So have you have you watched this at all?
1: I've seen a little bit of it.
0: I actually, I learned about it uh, from a friend of mine who I hang out with and he's big on eSports and he actually, when I go over to his place, typically has something up on the TV. And uh, a couple weeks ago I went over and it was Overwatch League. So he was kind of giving me the rundown in terms of some of the athlete details. And it was was fascinating because the athletes are kept on a really tight uh, training regimen. Both so that they stay in practice and that they practice a certain minimum number of hours per day. But they're also forced to actually not play for a certain number of hours per day because otherwise they would... Burn out and just play all the time so that was one really cool detail the other detail that was really neat was about how much monitoring goes on of their physical keyboards and their um, to prevent cheating they actually have to submit um, you know specs for for their gaming rig and they don't get to buy it themselves it's bought for them but there's all kinds of protection in place to make sure that they're not abusing the hardware or creating, uh, you know, key mapping that's going to let them have some competitive advantage. It was really fascinating.
1: Yeah, I read uh, the Wired article included a guy from Toronto who plays with uh, one of the LA teams and they had him breaking down a day and it was up at 6am between 6 and 9 they are not supposed to play the game. They're supposed to study previous performances of their own uh, between uh, 6 and 9 a.m. From At 9 o'clock, they have physical exercise regime, then followed by seven hours of play time in which they do basically the same that would do in the actual game, yeah. and they play against other teams as a way of practice. So they do that for seven hours. Then they have a couple of hours of team breakdown of their play and performance for the day, followed by, again, Uh, your own personal reflection and that's also when they have them do social media stuff and things like that and then it's like bedtime and then get up at 6 a.m the next morning and do the same thing over again yeah
0: i wonder what the player so did you find out um in your research what the players are making out of this
1: there's no uh definitive uh way to know what every player is making but they've run this they're running this like a legitimate sports league Mm -hmm. Right, and right down to what got me hooked into the story was seeing who owns some of these teams. So Such the as? rumored the rumored cost for a franchise uh, team in the Overwatch League is twenty million dollars, yeah. which is pushing out a lot of low-end people there are some traditional esports sort of teams that have managed to bundle together finances to buy it but looking at the list of people who actually own franchises so the boston the boston team is owned by robert Kraft, who owns the new england patriots in the nfl who actually they lost the super bowl this year to philadelphia but they've been in the super bowl for the last six years the guy who owns the new york mets owns one of the new york teams the guy who owns the philadelphia flyers owns the philadelphia team comcast uh owns one of the la teams so it's it's good uh, to know
0: that we're breaking into entirely new territory with esports But we're still letting the same millionaires control everything.
1: So that's interesting because there has been from, you know, some of the other side stuff I read was that a lot of the traditional esports teams that have played other games are very unhappy that these sort of major players have been able to scramble up uh, teams in this league. Makes sense. But it's going to hit where the money is. Yeah. So your original question, though, was about what the players are making. So the league has a minimum $50,000 a year uh, salary. Hmm. That's the minimum salary entry point and also includes health insurance uh, because they're done in American. It's the 401k (laughs) or retirement (laughs) savings plans for all of the players. They have contracts which are guaranteed, again, from reading way too much about this apparently a lot of the old uh, esports teams and and games the players would be on contracts that were cancelable with like a six-week notice so you would have a year long contract with an esports team but they could they could buy you out by paying you six weeks of pay and you were done so all the contracts in these leagues are uh, one-year contracts guaranteed for the year with uh, a team option to take you for a second year And they're locked in for a year. They can't fire you or else the only way they can get rid of you is by paying you out for your entire year's worth of salary. Wow! So one guy who plays for the Los Angeles Gladiators, I think it came out that he's making $150,000. Um, he's supposed to be a whiz kid damage dealer in in this because i was, the again i got into a little bit about what the game's all about but that wasn't really the interest for me the interest for me was really the story but yeah so this guy's a hot shot damage dealer who the los angeles gladiators are paying hundred and fifty thousand dollars a year yeah you, you'll be sad to know that we are long outside the uh, range of people playing in the professional league overwatch league they were talking with one guy and generally they, it's generally believed when they talk to a number of players that by 25 you no longer have the hand-eye coordination and reflexes to play this game so it's uh the age range is 18 to 25 and then you're done
0: well there go my plans for next summer
1: Alright, last week I left you with some homework, and that homework was for our Take Home Top 3. I asked you to give me the three movies which have scared you, left an impression, or otherwise creeped you out.
0: Yes, this was a really good homework assignment. I spent the whole week looking at lists of horror movies and trying to think of which ones had had the biggest impact on me. Um now when you gave me this assignment were you you kind of raised the the kind of uh specter of the stuff that we were watching when we were teenagers were you expecting to see any of that stuff on my list
1: There was one that I actually had in mind when I was uh coming up with it so I'll okay. hold off for now and then maybe we'll talk about it later So what I found I don't know what your list is so
0: Yeah what I found really interesting um was I've been watching a lot of horror movies over the last few years a lot of what actually has scared me has been more recent stuff. When I went back to the old 80s and 90s movies that uh, we used to watch in terms of a lot of them were like horror or like uh, monster movies, they were really fun and really enjoyable. And some of them I watched over and over again, but they didn't leave, leave me with uh, any kind of scare or any kind of You know, they were fun and enjoyable, but they weren't scary. Now, the one exception I'll make to that in the old movies was Poltergeist. So Poltergeist is my number three, and that um, I'm generally pretty susceptible to haunted house movies. But that one, you get that kind of uh, Steven Spielberg reality to kind of hook you in, and you get all kinds of different scares. You get the creepy scares, you get the gross scares... I think the scene that really, really freaked me out was the guy standing in the mirror hallucinating or being sort of demonically forced to hallucinate about pulling his own face off. That really creeped me out. So uh, Poltergeist is my number three. Number two might surprise you a little bit. It's maybe not considered uh, a great horror movie, but uh, it's uh, M. Night Shyamalan's Signs. Yes. So Signs... The reason that one creeps me out is it's so relatable. Um, I think generally I like, I really like post apocalyptic movies and I like anything about the world ending. But that one brought the initial fear of the world ending down to such palpable, realistic elements and kind of crossed over with the kind of personal level of like looking out your window and seeing something scary or something reaching under a door. So it just made it so visceral, like the general feeling was good, but then it had some really specific scares that just every time I see that movie, they they always get me. Right,
1: you may be able to disassociate yourself and your own personal experience from a story about a giant asteroid crushing the world, but when it comes down to a very discreet and small personal experience about what an end of the world situation would be like, it's a little more relatable for
0: sure. And you know, a lot of the end of the world things like the road was a, a near, a near uh, contender from my list too, in terms of just like thinking about how horrible things would be from a personal point of view. But uh, so signs is my number two. The number one movie that creeped me out more than anything else, um, I don't think I've ever been as scared watching a movie, and it's done this to me at least two or three times, is the original Blair Witch Project. Yeah. Um Something about being out in the woods at night and just, you know, it's not the best movie ever made, but that... Um, relatability. It's sort
1: of in, it's sort of intentionally not the best movie ever made. Yeah, and
0: it it kicked off a a whole genre of found found film movies. But I don't think anybody ever got it as good in terms of just the slow build and the the believability of just being lost in the woods and just being out in the woods at night can be scary. And if you've done that, uh, and uh, I did that a lot as a kid, you know, you'd go out camping or or partying at night and it's there's something just scary about being out in the woods and the build-up uh it just gets me
1: yeah camping or being at a party and suddenly you find yourself alone and separated from the other people and there is that uh, sort of primal fear of not knowing what could be out there in the dark
0: yeah and it can escalate so fast and that's I think that was the The vibe that Blair Witch really captures is, you know, it's, you know, you get just that little bit too far away from the light or you get too far away from your friends and all of a sudden you are just completely lost and on your own. So that was my absolute scariest movie that I could think of.
1: All right. I think those are all great choices and I would not disagree with any of them. But I I will, however, tell you the one that I was thinking about when we set this. And I think just a brief recap that I came up with this thinking about the one summer where we worked our way through the horror films in our local video store from A to Z. And the one that I remember as actually scaring me on that list was this movie we watched called Xtro, X-T-R-O. Xtro, yes. And... It wasn't the greatest film, it wasn't the greatest effects, it just had the most terrifying story about a family where dad goes missing, Yeah, and then dad comes back, and then you find out that it's not dad, dad has been replaced by an alien, and just there was a fear in that story of just this family where suddenly this alien has come in and infiltrated the family and the way he manipulates the kid in that it was uh that one really scared me.
0: (laughs) extra yeah that's so funny because you know i i kind of felt like when you asked me gave me my uh my take home top three i kind of felt like you had something in mind it was nagging at the back of my mind. Hmm, what's what was Darren thinking about as a really scary movie that we we watched in those days? And uh, in all the lists of horror movies that I went through, "Extro" did not feature on any of them. So it.
1: I can't imagine it would.
0: <laughs> I'm gonna have to dig that one up and uh, look up a little bit about that though.
1: I didn't look and see if I could find it anywhere. I just remembered it. Yeah. And so I went back and found a description of it. and I was like, oh yeah, that's scary. Yeah. Cool. Well, that's that was good.
0: Uh, so I think I need to give you an assignment for next week.
1: All right. I'm ready for the task.
0: This kind of ties into our discussion earlier about what is possible with CGI and these kinds of things, uh, although it doesn't need to be. Your take-home top three for next week is to come up with three three books or book series that you would like to see translated to TV or film. All right doesn't have to be sci-fi or fantasy, but uh, just you can assume that it's going to be done the way you want it.
1: <laughs> I almost never assume that that's going to happen. Well,
0: you know, this is, this is make-believe, so you can assume it's going to be done
1: right. I will think on that and have answers for you next week. Well, I think that is about all we have time for this week. Catch us every week at www.totallysortof.com or in the Podbean app.
0: If you liked what we had to say, if you didn't like it so much, or you just want to let us know what you think about some of the topics we were talking about, by all means, leave us a comment or reach us at Totally Sort Of on Twitter.
1: Like the Totally Sort Of podcast if you do, and share it with others who might.
0: Our intro song was "Punk" and used with kind permission by the artist K. Bona Black. And you can find more music from him on his Bandcamp site or through his Facebook profile.
1: And if you check the notes, you will find links to that and other things that we have spoken about this week. Until next time, I am Darren Hogan. And
0: I'm Chris McInnes.
1: And you've been listening to the Totally Sort Of podcast. All right. Talk to you later, buddy. You bet, pal.